This week, we're in Park City, Utah, at the new home of Lindsey Vaughn. When I won the Olympics, it was probably one of the greatest runs of my career, and I think the most intense amount of pressure. Arguably the greatest skier ever sheds light on retirement. I was depressed, and you know, it's just, it was a really hard time. And how she's finding new purpose with her foundation. I mean, you, you take a, a child that wants to kill herself, and I can help her. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. Tell us about where we are. <laughs> um, we're at my new house in Utah. I was living in Vail, obviously, for pretty much uh, most of my childhood. And I just felt like I needed a change, you know, after retirement. Vail just reminded me of all of my hospital visits. I think I was at the Vail Hospital more times than not, and I knew everyone by their first names, which is not a good sign. So I just felt like I needed a little change of scenery and uh, got a place here in Utah. My good friends are here. My friend Claire Brown, who's running my production company, is here. So a lot of reasons to be in Utah right now. I love the mountains, and I just I wanted to, to have that piece of me still, even though I didn't really want to be in Colorado anymore. So uh, hard, hard to find th- this one or, or uh, like when you saw this one, did you immediately know this was it? Actually, yeah, this was the first house I looked at. The uh, first house you looked yeah, at? Yeah, I'm pretty good at Zillow. Like Zillow is my wheelhouse. <laughs> so I can usually weed it down to the top three houses. And then within those three, I usually find my house. I'm like, I'm very... Um, like I need good energy and and I can tell usually with the layout what I like and what I don't like. And this house actually reminds me of my house in Vail. Um, but I think for me also I wanted a little bit more privacy. And so I got, what is it, 24 acres? So That um, works. Yeah. So my dogs can now run around and uh, I mean, I still have to keep an eye on them because there's a lot of animals around. Moose and bobcats as we were talking about a bit ago. (laughs) Yep, but uh, this is my new sanctuary and my new uh, retreat. I want to take you back to your earliest days and obviously challenging pregnancy for your mom. Um, What do you know about the complications she had when uh, you were born? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of gotten bits and pieces out of her over time. Um, It's not really something she likes to talk about necessarily. But if she had a stroke while giving birth to me and they couldn't, the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. Um, There was different differences of opinions and uh, there was a 50-50 chance that she would survive. And thankfully, my dad and my uncle made the right decision. If they had chosen the other path, she would have 100% died. Um, so she is, uh, what, what would have been, the other I don't know. Path? There was, there was two different, there were differences of opinion of what was wrong with her. So was one doctor said she had a stroke. Another doctor said there was something else going on in her brain. Um, and so if she would have gone and taken that medication that the other doctor wanted, she would have died. Um, so it was a pretty big gamble there, but, uh, and there's no history of strokes in her family. So. Um, it was kind of just one, one of those unfortunate things that happens during childbirth. Um, a lot of women have a lot of complications. Um, and my mom was in the hospital for, I don't know, six to eight weeks. Um, and my dad's pretty much all of his family came up to take care of me. Um, and my dad was still working full time as a lawyer. So thankfully we all made it through. And then my mom who was an incredible warrior, then had four children after me. That's what I was going to say. That seemed so remarkable that you could go through that and then still. Yeah, I think, you know, and the the, uh, latter three are triplets. And I guess I just found this out, like, not that long ago, but the chances of her surviving that were very low because of her stroke history and because it was, you know, three children. and she could have aborted them and she didn't. She chose to continue with the pregnancy and thankfully everyone made it out safe and sound. And uh, now we have five, five, five kids in our family and um, all equally weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, my family is great. I love, I love my family and um, you know, my mom is just, like I said, she's an inspiration to me. Whenever I've been injured, I always look to her and I say, well, you know, she can't recover from what happened to her, and I can. So I should just probably put that into consideration and realize that I'm very lucky 
and not complain and do the work and get better. You know, I, what, what did the recovery process entail for her to get back to where she is now? I mean, she's still trying to find ways to walk normally. She has a limp um, in her leg. You know, oftentimes with strokes, there's always one part of your body, usually one half of your body that um, is impaired after the stroke. And her, she had, she, she couldn't push off of her foot. She kind of had drop foot and um, she's, still swimming and like she's still trying to keep it activated but it just she did like electro stimulation she's had surgery on her foot she's um really tried to make it better but nothing's really done the trick so um but for me it doesn't matter if she gets i mean she's my mom i love her no matter what so what was it like growing up with four siblings it was chaotic <laughs> um and i was the oldest and i was like you know, the captain of the ship and should never put me in charge of four kids. Were you a good older sister? Um, I was pretty good, but you should ask them. They probably say I torture them. I, I was, um, no, I, I, I liked kind of being motherly with them and taking care of them. I mean, I made them lunches for school. When I got my license, I would drive them to school and pick them up. Like I, I really took it on, uh, took it on myself to take care of them as much as I could. I mean, my parents were working full time and, and I was of course skiing and traveling most of the time, but I always tried to do my part and help whenever I could. So when you're seven years old, your teacher asks you to write down your goals or your dreams, uh, what do you remember? I said I wanted to be the greatest skier of all time and growing up I always practiced my signature too. It was like, I'm gonna be famous one day and I'm gonna you know, have a really pretty signature. And um, Is your signature the same now as it was when you were practicing it yeah, when you were a kid? Yeah, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I always envied my dad. He always, he's a lawyer and he had beautiful handwriting and I just tried to always be like him and so I copied it. And that's kind of how I signed my name. What do you remember from when the idea first came about that you needed to go to Vail? My dad had the idea to go to Vail. Um, it was the best ski racing program in the country. I started going out there with my mother, I think when I was 11, drove 18 hours from Minnesota and we would um, stay there for a month or two, race, train, and then come back. And then eventually, you know, my mom didn't like being away from the kids and I felt like it was splitting up our family between Minnesota and Colorado. And so we all moved out to Colorado, but then my dad was still working in Minnesota. So either way, like it was just a really hard uh, situation for all of us. And you guys would occasionally sleep on the ground in the condo? Is that? Um, yeah, you know, when we were originally, when we originally moved to Vail with the whole family, we were in an, a small town home um, condo and, um, there's only two beds. We would draw straws. Somehow I may or may not have always had the longer straw. So <laughs> Laura and Karn may or may not have always been on the ground. But we definitely had our, had our moments where we were all on the floor. <laughs> How did you and your siblings find out the Minnesota house was sold? Um, yeah, we were in Vail and uh, I think my, my parents just had to make a decision based on finances and um, they just said, you know, we sold our house and we're like, what? We were definitely shocked, uh, very shocked, but. How, how did you guys handle it? We didn't handle it very well. I think we were all crying pretty intensely, but ski racing was my dream. It was never really their dream. So, um, in that way I felt, uh, exceptionally guilty, um, because, you know, they, they didn't ask for it. I mean, they missed their home in Minnesota and, and I felt like I kind of took that away from them in a way. The decision was made for my career mm -hmm. and that was pretty clear. So I knew from a very early age that uh, there's a lot of expectation on me. I always wanted to succeed for myself, but there was, I think always in the back of my mind, that feeling of, you know, I have to do this to, you know, for my family to prove that that they made the right decision and and I think that's why you know when I won the Olympics it was so emotional for me because that is what our family gave up everything for so that I could succeed and and win that gold medal and and it was um you, you said it, it almost validated the yeah it 100% valid I mean I felt a lot of joy but I would say more relief than anything else you know because that had been the ultimate goal that we had set out to do and we finally did it and it was, you know, everyone was crying. It was, it was like waterworks and 
siblings have a hard time having that conversation as well. It's just, you know, everyone feels like it was all worth it in the end. Uh, the early f like f financial challenges associated with just the pursuit of your dreams. Um, I think I read somewhere you said there were rules the, the family put on buying groceries after you guys moved to Vail, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, my mom, my mom's just, she's like a coupon cutter. She loves coupons and like, we're always trying to save money wherever we could. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say there were rules, but I think there was always, you know, a sense that we needed to um, make sure we were smart about what we did. And um, yeah, my mom was was definitely good at, at finding deals. Like she's always, she's like a salesperson. Like if there's a sale anywhere in the vicinity, she's gonna find it and like, that's where we're gonna go. How about best advice you got as a young skier? Um, I'd say best advice is just to be yourself. You know, um, Eric Seiler always said that I'm fast the way I am, my old coach in Minnesota. And, and um, a lot of coaches tried to change my technique and say that I'm not good enough or, you know, the way you ski isn't ever gonna be good. And he just said, the reason why you ski that way is that's who you are, that's what your body is and you can't change it. So I always stuck to my guns and never really changed it. And yes, it got me into trouble. I crashed in a lot of races, but it also won me a lot of races. So in the end, I think Eric was right. You're 16, 17 years old on the US ski team and you overhear people in the hallway talking about how eh, she's never gonna be anything. My, uh, my coaches, um, I overheard them and they, yeah, they said that um, Julie Mancuso is gonna be the next best thing and I wasn't going anywhere and they should just put all their money on her because she's gonna go to the 2002 Olympics and not me. How did it affect you at the time? Historically in my life, any person that tells me that I can't do something, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can to prove them wrong. So in a way, I think it motivated me um, and I proved them wrong. I was in the Olympics. I had the best um, U.S. women's results of the whole games. What did your dad used to tell you about how there are only two places in a race? Yeah, I mean, you're either first or you're last. It's like, you know, bottom line. and. Uh, it's not that he didn't accept, you know, not winning. It was just that ultimately the goal is to win. So if you're not winning, then kind of what's the point? And so I kind of got to that stage in my career where I was, I had plateaued. I didn't, I wasn't really, I wasn't making any progress. And that's when I kind of really bought into physical training. I went to Monaco, hired this trainer. I've never been pushed so hard in my entire life. To this day, I don't even think I've been pushed that hard. It was almost like Navy SEALs training. Like it was, you know, waters for wussies. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> it was old school, you know, push yourself to the max, like run until I tell you to stop. I, I'm surprised I didn't puke because I felt like I was going to puke all the time. But that was kind of, you're constantly in a state of complete exhaustion and you have to still push yourself beyond that. And um, helpful. I think it definitely toughened me up quite a bit. Um, you know, he'd always call me fat and like, you know, it was just kind of, uh, I was definitely a much different person coming out of those training camps with him. And, um, and now I know, you know, what my limits are. How hard are you on yourself? I'm definitely the hardest critic. You know, I'm pretty hard to please. I have a hard time saying that I did a good job at something. Um, Working on that in therapy, though. <laughs> has it helped? Uh, yeah, it definitely has. I mean, it's I'm still, you know, I have a lot to work on, but I think I've, you know, after skiing, I think I've accepted that I have had success in my career. And even though it wasn't, you know, the pinnacle of, you know, I didn't beat the, the record four wins shy of that, I, I still need to accept that I did something that no one else has done. Um, and that's just, I don't know, it's weird. I, I don't really, I still feel like a failure at times. There's always gonna be a question because I didn't break the record. And I can't say that I have the most wins of anybody. And without being able to say that, I feel like I can't really say I'm the greatest. You know, I'm, maybe I'm the greatest female skier, um, but I don't know. It, 
but that's just how my mind works. And I, that's why I'm, you know, was successful at skiing is because I was never satisfied. And whenever I won one thing, I wanted to win the next. And, you know, it wasn't that I set out to do all these things, but I just kept wanting more and more and more and nothing was ever really good enough. So, um, to your point, as I, I, yeah, don't really accept, um, success and again, therapy. You said uh, once before, all I've ever wanted to do is ski fast. I'm an adrenaline junkie. You know, I love going fast. I love pushing myself to the limit. I, I love the freedom um, of of ski racing. You know, there's no one out there judging you. You know, it's not a, um, it's not a contest. It's whoever's fastest from point A to point B wins. And skiing is just, it's very freeing and invigorating and you know, very difficult now that I don't have that because that was always my outlet. And so, um, I don't know, driving my car fast isn't really helping either. So <laughs> trying to, <laughs> I, I understand you're known to do that too, whether it was on like European mountain roads when you were skiing or like grabbing the wheel when your mom's driving or. Yeah. I mean, my mom, yeah, I, I, I had many trips with my mom where I had my driving permit and I was doing the 18 hour drives. Um, and I'm like, mom, you drive too slow. I can't, you can't drive. I'm going to drive the whole way. How about the fastest you've ever gone on skis? In training, I was clocked at 84. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's probably around there. 85, 86, you know, is, is top speed. If you're on the highway, stick your head out the window. Obviously not if you're driving, but stick your head out the window. And that's kind of how it feels, you know, with the wind in your face when you're, when you're skiing down the mountain. And then, um, and then jump out and that'll, <laughs> that'll feel uh, like what it feels like for us when we crash. How, how key is avoiding thinking about the danger element to it? Even though I've been injured many times, I love it so much. It, there's nothing about it that frightens me. You know, I love, like the faster I go, the more fun I'm having. Um, and crashing is just a part of our job. There's people that have been paralyzed, lost their legs. Um, there's people that have died. You know, those are the risks that we take, and everyone knows that. Um, I think sometimes when you get injured, you think about it more. Um, I know a lot of athletes have, um, but I kind of not that I think about it less. I just it never even it doesn't even register to me because it's I don't know. I do it because I love it and that's it. Your first Olympic race, your mom at the time called it the best day of her life. Oh, uh, she did? W why? I don't know. I mean, my mom is like, she's always happy and she's always has some sort of positive outlook on everything. And I'm not surprised she said that. You know, I think that, like I said before, I think for our family, making it to the Olympics and, and winning at the Olympics, those are things that we all worked for as a family. You know, we've all sacrificed for it. So I think it was a proud moment for, for our entire family. I mean, I think it was always worth it to them, you know, towards the end, but I think winning the Olympics just solidified it. The gold medal in the downhill at the Vancouver Olympics, you just sort of blacked out, apparently, according to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, at, when I won the Olympics, it was probably one of the greatest runs of my career. and. I think the most intense amount of pressure. And I was definitely, you know, in the zone to the point where I have zero recollection of anything. I'd remember the start and I remember almost crashing by the finish because um, my shin was hurting so bad. And then um, I remember seeing my name in green, which means you're winning, and then I freaked out. Your dad. Complicated relationship. You called winning the Olympic gold the highlight of your career, but I guess you've since said you wanted to call your dad at the time, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. um, why not? At the time, you know, things weren't great between us, and um, it's unfortunate because that was definitely one of the best moments of my life, and I wanted to share that with him, but, um, you know, it just was what it was at the time. And obviously things changed and I'm very happy for that. Um, but, you know, I think it's difficult for any, you know, parent-child relationship when, um, you know, you become successful in your sport. And there's, I haven't seen really one athlete parent do it perfectly. There's always, you know, some sort of um, situation or issue. And 
I'm just happy that things with my dad are good now, so. What was the point in which, at the time, based on whatever you're thinking was then, you made the decision best for me to just cut things off? You know, I was married and we had just kind of gone our separate ways. Um, and when I got divorced, then, you know, I obviously called my daddy as a lawyer and um, it was hard at first, but we definitely worked our way back into it and eventually built up uh, our relationship to what it is now. And, and he said that at the time he called, emailed. Did, I didn't you, see any of those. You didn't see any of them? I don't, yeah, I didn't see any of them, but um, that's not to say that he didn't write them. I just didn't see them. Because you had the, the, him, him blocked or you no. just don't know if that actually happened? I know why, but I can't really tell you. So they were probably deleted. It was hard. I, I, I guess I didn't really see it. It kind of eventually over time became what it was. And, you know, I was also, I was married at 22. So like, what did I know? You know, I was, I, I was so hyper-focused on skiing that I didn't really see a lot of other things that were going on, and it's unfortunate, but um, you live and you learn, you move on, and, you know, your family is my dad, so, you know, it's pretty easy to rebuild a relationship with your father. How is it that when you were going through your divorce that you managed to have the greatest season ever by a woman in World Cup history? Because... I was using ski racing as an escape. Um, ski racing is the place that I, I can go and I can not think about anything else in the world. And so no matter what happens in my life, divorce, family, whatever it is, I can always go skiing and only be skiing, you know, be in the moment, not have anything on my mind, but enjoying what I'm doing. And it's always given me a great sense of happiness and fulfillment and, um, you know, like I said, it's it's hard now that I don't have that because that's always kind of been my go-to. And uh, working out was kind of taking that place a little bit. But yeah, ski racing is just I can I can shut everything out. Doesn't matter what is happening in my life. Ski racing is always been my rock. And you said back then, for the first time in your life, you realized you were skiing solely for yourself. It's always been me in the starting gate, but I think you know, others' expectations and, um, you know, how things kind of were dictated to me and the way that, you know, I trained and, you know, how I approached everything, that was Because not, if it wasn't your ex, it was your dad before that. Was that. Just, yeah, it was, or my coaches, you know, that I'd never had enough confidence in myself to say, no, that's not what I want to do. I want to do something else. Um, and so I finally, you know, realized that, I'm the one that's there. I'm the one that's putting in the work. I'm the one that's risking my life. I became in control of my life on the hill and, and off the hill as well. I just made sure that, you know, my decisions were mine and mine alone. And I get advice from other people, but I made sure that no one was dictating anything to me. You don't strike um, me as I'm, somebody I'm very, that's like a, afraid to I'm a speak pushover. up for yourself. I'm a really? pushover, yeah. I have a really hard time saying no. Hence why I'm doing this interview. Oh, <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> That was a good one-liner. What do you think you've learned about yourself through relationships? Uh, that's a good question. I have learned what I need as a person. Um, you know, what kind of support I need. Because I have a tendency to be um, very self-sufficient. You know, I normally don't like to take help from anybody. Like PK, you know, for example, he's he's very supportive, but he's not like up in my business. You know, he's not trying to dictate what I do or what I don't do. He's there supporting me. I mean, he didn't really care to watch my races because he's like, I just, I love you. I don't love your races. I don't care if you're ski racing or playing tennis or bobsledding or whatever it is that you're doing. I'm going to support you. Tell about your uh, first ESPYs interaction with PK. Um, yeah, I mean, that was the first time I met him. And he said on national television, 
uh, it's hot out here, but not as hot as Lindsey Vaughn looks tonight. So that was our first uh, meeting. Um, and what are you thinking when I'm you thinking, hear him say that? Who the hell is this guy? I was legitimately like irritated and mad. Yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> of course, it was a compliment. So I'm like not going to say that I wasn't flattered, but it was irritating. Which he, he can do that sometimes. So he loves to push my buttons. How did he propose? I had had a meeting. I was all dressed up. He was sweaty. He just worked out. He was acting a little bit weird. And then he was like faltering in his pocket and he pulled out the ring. And I was like, what? I thought he was totally kidding because like he's a jokester. You know, I, sometimes it's hard to tell if he's being serious or not. Um, but yeah, he got on one knee and he gave me this emerald, which is his birthstone. And it's my favorite color, obviously. Um, and, uh, yeah, of course I said yes, because I love him. And, and then correct me if I'm wrong, you, uh, later proposed. Well, yeah, it's like, well, why do women get an engagement ring and men don't? But mainly it was just, I wanted to lock him down. I did it on Christmas. I had, like, the dogs all dressed up as, like, Santa Claus and, like, Mrs. Claus. And I was all waiting by the Christmas tree, and we had, like, our matching pajamas on, because we're cheesy like that. He was surprised, and he loved it. Uh, I understand you guys were supposed to get married this summer. Yeah, the pandemic. I mean, that's, <laughs> it was like, uh, what are we going to do, and how are we going to do it? And his family's in Canada, and they can't get here, and we can't go to Canada because I'm not a Canadian citizen, um, and neither can my family. It was like, it was just way too complicated. And, you know, he really wants to have his family there, and so... We're Understandable, wait. yeah. Right. Kids before marriage, possibly. I mean, if it, if that happens, then that's that's the way it is. But we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna make, have a wedding that we're not thrilled about just because there's COVID. You know, right. we're just gonna wait and do it the right way and do it the way we want to. And you know, um, if we have kids before that, then. We're gonna get married anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, I, I watched the video you posted on Instagram. I think it was called what, like uncomfortable conversations with a black man, right. Emmanuel um, Acho. And you said uh, something like, uh, "I have had difficult moments with people I'm close to about dating PK, and I don't know how to communicate our relationship to them." Um, I, I explain that. You know, I think there are conversations involved with race that are very difficult. Um, there's not always a clear answer or a clear path to understanding. I will never be able to walk in PK shoes. And so um, I try to learn as much as I can from him and from others and um, educate myself as much as possible. PK's family has been um, so great and his sisters especially have um, really helped and tried to, you know, um, teach me and educate me and they recommend books to me that they think would be helpful and you know subconsciously you know you have what I don't think is racist may be racist and so I always ask them you know is this what does this mean you know is there hidden undertones that I'm not getting because you know I don't understand it's nice to know that they're always there to help me and and um, you know they're he has an amazing family and very lucky to be coming into that family. Are there conversations that like you might not have expected to have to have with people close to you that? Uh... Yeah, I mean, it just it adds another layer of of complication, not complication, but it's just there are different things in an interracial relationship that um, that others wouldn't have. And and um, I think the main thing is educating each other and, um, you know, really being willing to understand and, and open your mind up. And, and um, I've gotten a lot, of, a lot of hate and I get myself a lot of um, trolls that really like to take, take pretty big digs at me, especially like during the Olympics. There's, there's a lot of things that, that have gone on over the course of my the last probably, you know, eight years, six years that um, I've tried to navigate and learn from and understand, you know, I'm never gonna understand why someone's a racist, never gonna understand that, but I also need to be um, more aware of myself and my actions and I never 
want to give the impression that I, I think I know everything because I honestly know nothing. I mean, what do I know? You know, so I'm, I, I approach it from that perspective, you know, help me to understand. How did uh, being in the relationship impact your perspective recently in terms of everything going on in the world? Well, I think PK has a different perception or perspective because he's he's from Canada, right? So he doesn't experience, or he said that he hasn't really had the same experiences as growing up a black man in the United States. Um, but you know, he he likes to take action, and you know, he's less of a talker and more of a doer. You know, he um, created his Blue Line buddies um, when Kaepernick was kneeling. Um, because he wanted to bridge the gap between police officers, law enforcement, and underprivileged youth. And he's done a great job with that. He's trying to expand that league-wide right now. Instead of talking about it, he wants to help others and you know, find ways to create scholarships. And, and as am I with my foundation, you know, and um, I'm trying to be more diverse as well. I think I, I reach a bit of a different audience than he does. So I'm trying to, you know, I'm really, trying to help as many people as I can from all different backgrounds. You petitioned to uh, compete against the men on the World Cup circuit. Uh, why decide to do it? I, you know, I had been training with the men since probably 2011, and I never usually timed with them because I'm like, ah, you know, I don't want to lower my confidence, you know, and get my ass kicked and then, you know, not feel good about the training sessions. A couple of times we did, we did like video analysis and I was like right there with Axel, arguably one of the greatest downhill skiers of all time. And uh, I was like 200s or 300s behind him. I was like, holy shit, you know, I could, could I be competitive with the men? And you know, some of my coaches were kind of joking about it. I'm like, well, it's an interesting concept, you know, what a way to, to push myself. Because that's why I train with them to begin with, is because they're much better than I am. And I want to learn from them and I want to, be a better ski racer. So I was like, well, this would be the ultimate, you know, it's like uh, what uh, Billie Jean did or what Annika Sornstan did. It's like, you know, it's not so much that you want to beat the guys, it's that you want to be a better athlete. That's what Annika always told me. And I, you just have to be really persistent. You know, you have to really do your research and come up with, you know, a good solution. And I, I tried that, but no one, like my, my plan never really got past the front door. I don't even think they even read my petition. Why do you think they like denied the petition outright? I think some guys were worried that I would beat them. I mean, I got a lot of support from a lot of people. Axel and the Norwegian team was one of them. They were definitely wanted me to try it. But so, I mean, I would train with the Canadian guys sometimes and like they always had a bet that whoever got beat by me would have to do the dishes that day. And like, there are people doing the dishes, trust me. So, um, you know, I just don't think they like the idea of a woman racing with men. It just, you know, it's always been the perception that women's ski racing is so much inferior to men that, you know, how could you compete? And so they were very close-minded to the idea. How do you think you would have fared? I have no idea, which is why I wanted to do it. You know, maybe I would get 30th, maybe I would get 50th. I, like, I, I don't mean, you know. think you could have won? No, I absolutely don't think I could have won. No, those guys are way too strong and powerful, and I can't do what they do on skis. I want to. Knowing myself, I'd probably kill myself. You know, I'd try too hard, and then I'd do something stupid. So. I mean, how short-sighted was that, though, on the, the Federation's part to not allow it? I mean, just to, for no other reason than exposure... That's what many, that's what, I mean, the right. Canadian Federation was all for it because obviously yeah. it was in Lake Louise and they thought it was a great idea. I don't know, it's just the mentality of ski racing, you know, uh, a lot of male athletes were like, this is a joke, you know, she's a woman, like, she has no chance, like, what, this is just for PR. And I was like, there's a lot of things I could do for PR that, you know, don't involve me trying to petition, like, there's a lot of work that went, in, that was involved with trying to do this. And um, so, I don't know, I just think it's, Close-mindedness, maybe. Michaela Schifrin, uh, when Outside Magazine declared her <laughs> the greatest skier ever, uh, why did it bother you? Well, you know, she is the greatest slalom skier, you know, ever. That's without question. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of sensationalization that media does a lot. 
and you know they take one thing and then they kind of generalize it and it becomes something totally different and you know that was at the time I was still racing I was still winning and it's it's great for her but I feel like it was pretty disrespectful to me she, you know she's not responsible for what other people write about her um, what did you do after they uh, did the story? I don't know. I tweeted something probably. I'm, I'm <laughs> like, I usually don't, like, it, it's not that it bothers me. It just, you know, I felt like it was just wasn't accurate and it's not being honest. And, and um, like, say it. She's the greatest slalom skier of all time. Just say that. It's not that hard. Don't make it, you know, something that it's not yet. I've been told that, like, you guys have at least somewhat of a challenged relationship. So first day she came to train with us, I said, you know, I know, you know, when you first come onto the team, it can be challenging and you don't know anybody. And then just, I'm, my door is always open. I'm, I'm here to help. You know, I repeatedly, you know, tried to, you know, we, we always help each other with our course reports. And I think I just, uh, I don't, we didn't have a challenged relationship. She just, she had her own thing and she didn't really want to be involved or have my help or have anyone's help for that matter. So, um, and everyone has their own path. I don't hate on that. That's, that's totally, that's totally fine, you know, but. To, to what extent has that dynamic changed uh, um, since you're. It hasn't. It hasn't. No. Why do you think that is? I mean, everyone has their own approach and hers is different from anyone else's and that's why maybe she's successful um but I also think as a professional athlete and you know someone who's the greatest of all time it's your responsibility to help others like you're in a role that you could positively impact so many people and and um I don't feel like that's being utilized in the way that it could be really what would you do differently I should be a part of the team you know that's but that's how I operate I've experienced not being welcome in a team I, I know the feeling of not being, not being involved in the team to the point that like you're winning and your teammates aren't in the finish area. And I also know the feeling of being a leader and including everyone and being a team and having your team in the finish area. What do you think of the current state of U.S. ski racing? Um, well, I'm actually working with them right now uh, to try to help, help the state of U.S. skiing. Um, we don't really have a lot of athletes coming up in the ranks, especially on the women's side, um, trying to figure out why that is and you know where the holes are in our system. Um, I'm also trying to help the college athletes who are um, who have World Cup spots but aren't on the U.S. ski team. Um, they don't have any support. They don't have any funding. They have really nothing. What do you think the biggest challenges are that they're facing? I think most most female athletes, especially skiers, are they they quit. You know, it's not fun or it's too expensive. In Europe, you know, you pay 15 euros and you got a lift ticket for the whole day. Here, it's like 150, you know, so it's it's quite a difference economically. You know, I think there's issues with the development team and I don't agree with the way the athletes are, are treated. And um, I think that's causing, you know, a lot of people to, to quit and it feels unattainable to them. Name all the injuries that you can remember getting? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've had two ACLs, MCL, I'd say probably four tibial plateau fractures on my right leg, uh, two on my left, uh, LCL on my left, uh, meniscus repair, meniscus meniscotomy, what, what was it, where they cut your meniscus out. Um, I've had a humerus fracture, spinal fracture, uh, I've still got the plate and the rods in my arm. Um, I've sliced my thumb. I've broken my finger at the Olympics. Uh, I've broken my ankle. Had a lot of concussions. Broke my wrist. I don't know. I think that's kind of it. How many concussions do you think you've gotten? I don't even, I can't even count. I mean, I just kind of, I crash a lot, so. A lot. <laughs> um, if I could, I wanted to name a few and just get you to recall what comes to mind. Uh, the first one being uh, you're going 70 miles an hour downhill, a training crash two days before the Olympics. 
that was my first partial ACL tear in Ore, Sweden, 2005, I think, 2006. 2006, yeah, February, yeah. What happened? I was skiing slalom, I straddled a gate, and the, the, my tip actually stuck on the base of the gate and like hyperextended my knee, um, partially tore the ACL. I didn't need surgery on that one, which was nice, but that's why I took the time to then get married after that because my season was cut short. And um, I had won two medals in that, that world championship, so I was like, okay, well, this is a great season, so you know, I'll be careful and make sure my ACL heals because, you know, in ski racing, ACL is one of the most important parts of your body. Um, so, yeah, that was the, kind of the first, first of many ACLs. Your right knee bending inward sharply, and you talked about an odd sensation where almost your body was going over the tips of your skis. That was the Sladming 2013, uh, where I tore my MCL, ACL, Tibial plateau fracture, yeah. Ski stopped in the snow when I went when I landed on the jump, and it was disgusting. What are, are you aware of? What's going on in, in the moment, or is the pain such that um, you don't really feel the pain necessarily while you're falling? It's kind of when you come to a stop, and then it's either sharp or it's not. And usually, you know right away if it's if you're. If you're in one. If you're in one, you know that you're in one. And so in that situation, when you come to a stop. I knew my season was over. I didn't, I didn't know how long I would be out, but I knew it was out. How about November 2016? Uh, you severely fracture the humerus bone in a, your right arm in a training crash. That one was pretty gross because, you know, I, I crashed. It wasn't anything crazy. I just got my arm kind of stuck behind me and I fell onto it. Um, and of course, when I crash, I always check my knees first, you know, am I good? My knees are good. Yep. Everything's good. And then I tried to get up and I tried to like move my arm, you know, to push off and like I would move my shoulder, but the rest of my arm didn't move with it. And I could like, I could feel like the bone. It was absolutely disgusting. Like I could feel that there are pieces of bone. Like I can't really describe it. Um, it felt like my arm wasn't attached to me. Like I had this 15 pounds of weight that was not associated with my body. Um, and then there was there wasn't enough snow to have the trail go all the way to the bottom. So we had to evacuate me on a truck in a truck on a dirt road, and. Uh, I was in so much pain, my physical therapist, Lindsay Winninger, had to keep hitting my face to keep me awake. Um, and I had oxygen on and we didn't, something happened that day, we, the medical pack wasn't there, so we didn't have any, any pain meds. And by the time I got to the hospital, um, it had been about an hour and a half since my crash, and um, my, oh my, nerve, my nerve had popped out. So the bones were hitting um, on the nerve, and that's why I was in so much pain. Um, and because it had taken so long to get to the hospital, it had been a lot of, um, a lot of damage to the nerve. And I woke up from my surgery and I had no function or feeling in my, my hand. And I said, well, I, I asked the doctor, I'm like, did you guys put a nerve block in? And they're like, okay, this is worse than we thought. Well, Lindsay, you have nerve damage. We don't know how long it's going to take or if it's going to come back. I had a stroke hand, you know, I, I, it was curled up. I couldn't, I couldn't hold anything. I couldn't, I couldn't move it. I really wanted to be able to write and put a hair tie on and feed myself and didn't know if that was going to be possible. But we kind of did the opposite of what we, the doctors told us. We, instead of icing it, that's what you're normally supposed to do. We got in a hot tub because heat stimulates healing and it stimulated um, swelling, but for the nerve, it was better to be in a hot tub. So we did all of our training in a hot tub. It was a long process, but um, mm -hmm. definitely one of the worst, like scariest, most painful injuries. What was the point you realized you were gonna get through it? Um, when I could write my name, but it's still, I got so tired because it was mentally draining. I literally, my brain hurt. It was so tired from focusing on 
like just holding the pencil in my hand. Um, but when I could start to like actually write and I could feed myself, um, I, I was pretty good at eyeliner though on my left hand. My left hand, I, that was one thing that I was pretty impressed with myself. I'm like, wow, I could, I'm close to being ambidextrous, but not really. But at least I got my eyeliner. When your uh, trainer got pissed off at you for the broken arm pull up, uh, doesn't really phase me very much. Where you, yeah, uh, it's like you that's, it you know, I I always take doctor suggestion as like a suggestion and a negotiation as instead of like this is what it has to be. So I'm like, uh, I know that you told me I should be in this walking boot for six weeks, but I think four weeks is probably going to be pretty good for me. You know, I I like to. And I usually get them to negotiate down. You know, I'm like, ah, that sounds a little too long. Like, you know, what? what? Do you mean? How do you get a doctor to negotiate because that? It's like, I mean, medical advice is medical. <laughs> okay, so it's like if I. <laughs> so you peer pressure them totally. based on your. <laughs> totally. Uh, you, you missed the 2014 Olympics because of injury. But it was painful to watch. Very painful. Because I had done really well. I had won, I think I won the race, um, like the, the race before the Olympics the year before. and. It was a good hill for me, and I was just like, <sighs> form of torture for sure, for me anyways. You know, you have four years that you're working hard for the Olympics, and I was in my prime, you know, and uh, you never know what things will be like in another four years. You know, am I gonna be too old uh, to compete? So I just didn't know, I didn't know what would happen, but I knew that that would have been an a great opportunity for me to have another chance at Olympic medal and I didn't have that but you know everything happens for a reason taught me a lot about myself and I can handle a lot apparently long-term damage to the body uh, how much if at all did you think about it during your career I didn't really think about it but now I think about it do you <laughs> yeah I mean I'm a pain all the time. Like I work out not because, I mean, I love working out and I think it, it, it helps me, you know, get over ski racing, but I also have to work out. If I don't work out, my knee is in extreme pain. Like I have a hard time walking the dogs for 10 minutes. Um, because if I don't strengthen my muscles around my knee, then it, it's bone on bone right now. And, uh, if I'm not strong enough, then it's unreal painful. So and that's just one of many joints and injuries that I've had. So I'm really not looking forward to what things look like in 20 years. Um, probably, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, how long do I wait till I get a knee replacement? You know, I, <laughs> this is life now. So how do I, how do I manage this to live with as little pain as possible? And I'm trying to make it through, because if I had a, even a partial knee replacement, I need another replacement in 10 years. So how many times, like, I don't know, is there maximum, like, knee replacements you can have? Like, I don't know that. Yeah. Like, I've already had more stem cell injections than, like, anyone they've ever done, and it's not really helping. So uh, I don't really know what my options are at this point, but I'm hoping that someone comes up with something. You, you'd said the night before uh, your final race, it's really scary to think about not having something I love so much, but I also want a future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's that's exactly how I felt, and I still feel, you know, it's... I still have to look forward to the future, you know. How, at what point is the, the risk outweigh the reward? And I had reached that point. Um, I knew that would happen eventually, you know, every athlete does, but it doesn't make it easier to accept. Um, and I want to ski when I, with my kids, you know, I, I, I would like to go on a longer than 10 minute walk with my dogs, you know? Um, and so that's why I, I stopped because I, I'm too, too damaged. I know mentally that I could still win. I could still win today, but I don't, the engine's broken, you know? There's no, like, there's no mechanic that can fix it good enough to be able to compete at a level that I'm confident I can win at. You really b believe that? Yeah, I'm physically, I'm, I mean, and I'm, I'm one of many athletes that 
is experiencing the same thing. I mean, I know athletes that are over on a scale of one to ten, they're they're a twelve on pain every day. So I'm not at a twelve yet, but I don't want to get there. Right. <laughs> it's not a fun life. Why don't you ski anymore now? Um, because mentally, I still feel like I could win. It's like something died. Someone died. You know, ski racing is dead to me because I can never go back to it. I've done it since I was two and a half years old, and now it's gone. I mean, you can still That's do it, same. but it, but because it's not at the competitive level. It's like if you're a Formula One driver, is it going to be really that fun to drive a Prius? No. You know what I mean? It's not the same. It'll never be the same. How long do you think you stay away? Well, I'm not really putting any timeline on it. Whenever I feel like I want to go skiing, I will. I mean, I'm here in the mountains for a reason, but I'm just I'm taking it one step at a time, and uh, I'll get there when I get there. You said before, when I don't ski, I have a hard time being happy. Uh, why? Uh, I think that's changed a bit now. Um, you know... I think I was just too dependent on skiing. Now, you know, there's a life outside of that and I'm finding so much more fulfillment in other things, just like having time to myself and with my family and, um, you know, I can go on vacation whenever I want. I can, I, can, I can do whatever it is I want to do. I start my own business, start my production company, you know. There's a lot more to life than being the, in the bubble of being an athlete. What was the hardest point for you? of the transition and how'd you ultimately get through it? Um, I would say it was the first year after retirement was hard. I was depressed and, you know, it was just, it was a really hard time. But, you know, I'm lucky that I had PK and I had my family. Um, I had my dogs, of course, my dogs. That really helped me a lot to kind of get over that hump. It, and that's like selling the place in Vail tight in. With that as well, you were talking about a bit earlier. The amount of days and time that I spent in my house in Vail, in bed, I couldn't get past it. I'm like, I, I can't, all I think about is being injured. And I love the town of Vail and everyone there has been so supportive of me. And, um, but it just, it was too many memories that I just would rather put behind me. People probably are unaware of how like lonely being an elite athlete or somebody that excels is at the top of their profession, how, how lonely that can be. And even if that's not the case for you now, um, at various points in your career, how lonely was it? Exceptionally lonely. I mean, that's why I got a dog. How many dogs can you have? You know, I have three dogs and I've become, I'm becoming like the crazy dog lady. So I had to, you know, call it quits at three. <laughs> Um, but you know, you win and there's all this excitement and you know, everyone's like, oh, this is great. And then you go home and it's, you're in an empty hotel room in a foreign country. And like, who do I call? I don't know. It's just, you're by yourself and there's not enough, you know, uh, Netflix, Amazon shows to, you know, make you forget that. How many Christmases were you by yourself? I mean, I missed my birthday and Christmas every year from the time I was 15 until 27, maybe. You eventually need to be around family and friends at some point. When I was kind of in my heyday, I was uh, traveling from October until end of March. You know, that's, that's a lot of time. And that, that wears on you. The deeper you get into it, like the more time you're away, the deeper you dig in on your life revolving around skiing. And that's, you have to focus on that, you know. Be very simple-minded, not let your thoughts wander. So d tell me about the four-day Harvard Business School course that you took. Um, that was awesome. It was probably one of the best experiences I've had, you know, outside of like skiing. Um, because I, I missed school, you know, I was only, I was like a part-time student um, when I was in high school um, at the Vail High School, Battle Mountain High School, and then I did most of it online because I didn't meet the state requirements for attendance. 
ironically. Um, so, you know, I didn't really have a school experience. I never went to college, and that was one of the things my dad always wanted me to do is go to college. I'm like, well, you know, Dad, I'm like 34 years old. Like, am I really going to go to college now? And uh, but I was really excited because I was like, I got into Harvard. Even though it's a four-day business program, but still I still Harvard. like bought a Harvard sweatshirt, and I was like so proud of it. I was very nervous. Um, I mean, it's really intimidating going to Harvard, especially having not really graduated like a normal high school and not going to college. <laughs> I'm like, when I got accepted, I, I, she called me, and I'm like, are you sure that I got in? Because like I don't, I don't really have that much education. So I went, and it was. Yeah, I met so many amazing people. I learned a lot about myself, about actually the knowledge that I do have, um, because I run my own business. You know, my my brand, my, my social media—that's all done by me. I expanded my mind a lot. You know, I thought I was pretty ahead of things as far as like you know how I'm building my business, and and I realized that wow, I I have a lot to learn still. Uh, uh, your production company. How long has it been in the works for? Um, I'd say two years. I've been working on it, and you know, I grew up with Claire Brown, who's um, running my production company, and she was helping me my last season, kind of with the media. She'd been running a, a ski racing magazine, um, and pub- she was a publisher and editor, and she has a skill set, and I was like. You know, we want, I want to tell stories that aren't being told, and you want to tell stories that aren't being told. How do we, how do we make this together? And so we came up with Opry Productions, and um, I'm really happy. You know, she's done a great job. We have some really cool stuff in the works. Can't tell you yet, but we have a really big project coming up, um, and uh, it's really exciting. Anything that you can tell? I really want to. I, I tried to get permission to say it, but I can't. Assuming like that happens in, in the way you want, um, what would that mean? We want to tell stories that haven't been told and, and also that are personally engaging to us. Um, you know, ski racing is a sport that not many people really understand as far as the history of, of ski racing and, and, you know, women and men that have, what they've gone through to make it is, make it what it is today. And, um, and also people that have greatly impacted me in my career. And to be able to tell those stories um, is a really great and unique opportunity. And, um, and I, want to t- I want to tell stories like the first female downhill skier. I mean, there's a lot of women that are not going to be alive very long. You know, I want to get these stories out there um, and really empower people, especially women. So hopefully... Beyond this upcoming project, we have, I hope we have a lot of um, projects that are really able to expand on, on those thoughts and, and really empower people. And how did that documentary that you did about your final season impact the desire on your end to do this? Well, it just showed me how impactful it can be. I mean, so many people came up to me after the HBO documentary and said, you know, wow, I didn't know you went through all that with your injuries. You know, I, I had an ACL injury or I had, you know, this injury, you know, how, how can I recover from it? Or, you know, I relate so much to your, you know, to, to everything you're going through it. And hearing those inspirational stories from other people who've watched a documentary really showed me that it's so much more than ski racing. You know, a lot of people know me not for my ski racing, but for overcoming adversity. And um, that was empowering to me, and it's, it was a, a privilege to be able to, to see the impact that it had on others. And knowing that, that that is possible, taking that and then creating other projects that can hopefully do the same. And did I read you're working on something with Robert Redford? Mm-hmm. Yeah. W- what's involved with that? Ah, he's the best. Um, yeah, it's in the works. We're uh, a resident out here. Yeah, well. he's close nearby. Um, but yeah, we've been working on that project for a long time now. And, you know, one thing I've learned is that movies take a lot longer to produce than, uh, than I ever imagined. <laughs> uh, lastly, in the production company front, uh, well, like long term, what do you want to achieve with it? I just want to inspire people. You know, I want to share stories that 
are powerful and uh, emotional and it's like the little guy, you know, that no one tells stories about, you know. Like my friend Alice McInnes, she's had more surgeries than I had and she grew up racing with my sister and she's still racing. She's shattered pretty much every bone in her body. I think there's maybe just like one part of her leg that doesn't have a metal rod in it. She was fourth in the Olympics in Pyeongchang and no one talks about her story, or she's fifth. No one talks about her story, but that's a story that I want to tell because she is a, an incredibly strong woman. And, uh, you know, if no one's going to tell it, then I will. How did you get the idea for the foundation? I met Peekaboo Street when I was nine at a ski shop in Minnesota. And because of, I met her, I said to myself, I want to be her. And what she did is really what drove me to want to be in the Olympics. And so I thought, you know, if one person can inspire my life by meeting her for a minute and a half, you know, what, what can I do? What positive impact can I make if I spend a whole day with a child? You know, what can I inspire them to do? And it doesn't have anything to do with ski racing. But sometimes, you know, kids, they just need a little push. They need someone to say, you can do it. You know, it's shocking how many people actually tell children they can't do something. And that changes the course of their life because they remember that forever. You know, there's a very, there's a moment in a child's life like 11 to 16 where they're so impressionable. And you say one wrong thing to them and that can take them on a totally different path. You say one positive thing and it can take them on a totally different path. So my foundation is we want to empower kids. We want to inspire them. I have strong girls camps um, where we teach them about goal setting, like self-confidence, um, how to change a negative thought into a positive one. I have scholarships, um, I have free community programs. So we're just trying to encourage kids to believe in themselves. I feel like everyone's put on the earth for a certain reason. And I thought I was ski racing for a long time. Ski racing is just a vehicle for me to do other things that are more positive and where I can help people. What made you have the realization? After my, I started my foundation, you know, seeing the impact, like I had it. I had a girl, a young girl who uh, cut herself. And um, after my camp, she stopped doing it. And like that made me so happy. And I was like, this is what I'm here for. I mean, you, you take a, a child that wants to kill herself and I can help her. Sorry. What uh, about her story uh, resonated with you so much? I don't know, I mean, it's like, what does a ski racer have to do with, you know, some kid who's underprivileged, you know, it just, I was like, that's how I can help people. <sighs> Sorry. It's okay. I mean, it, it, it has it's to be. It makes me emotional because it's, it's powerful and, you know, I, I never set out to do, I, I just wanted to ski fast, you know, and if I can help one person, which I, which I felt like I did, you know, then it's, it means something. It's more than just winning, you know, it's not about breaking records, although for me it's meant so much to me my whole life, but in the end, you know, what value are you bringing to the world? And I felt like I found that value. How did you find out the impact that uh, your foundation had on her? She was brought to me by a friend. And she came to my strong girls camp. And, uh, and afterwards we stayed in touch. You know, we had exchanged cell phone numbers and I don't know, she just, we always, wrote each other and she was like, you know, I, I stopped cutting myself. I don't, I want to, I want to live. And that makes me happy because I, I want, like, I don't want a kid to want to take their own life. That has to be the most gratifying feeling in the world to like actually. It is. That's why I'm crying. It's yeah. like, you know, It's making an impact and I, that's what makes me happy is, you know, 
who cares if I blew my knee out five million times, you know? One, I helped one girl not want to kill herself. Tell about career day and what you do with that. I love career day because, you know, it's the same concept as, as you know, me meeting Peekaboo and inspiring me is, is, you know, through COVID, you know, kids aren't able to go to school. You know, they feel like they're, they're depressed and down and it's like what, you know, they don't have anything to look forward to. And so I thought, well, what if I can connect, you know, these girls and their heroes on Zoom and, you know, help them stay positive and help them continue to work hard to whatever it is they want to do. And I mean, I had an astronaut on there with one of our um, scholarship winners who wants to be an aerospace engineer, um, which is awesome. I wanted something for them, for the kids to look at, you know, and say, okay, you know, there is still future. I can still do something even though we're trapped indoors and, you know, everything seems to be, I don't know, I felt really depressed just being trapped inside. And, and so I felt like maybe this can help a little bit. And I know that the girls that were on the call, I helped a lot, but um, I hope that it inspired other girls as well. You know, it's, it's like women impacting women, you know, strong, strong women who have broken barriers and, and defied uh, stereotypes and then helping them, the other, the young generation, you know, do the same and do even more with that. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And, and then lastly, on the foundation front, and I know I asked you a similar question about the production company, but just long-term goals with it. I mean, everyone, my sister included, criticizes me because she's like, well, you, we need to have a more definitive goal and a more definitive plan. I'm like, I don't really want to because I, I want it to be open. I want to help as many. The goal is to help as many children as possible in whatever way that is, um, whether it's scholarships or programs. You know, I, I want to I've been partnering with other with other uh, foundations to kind of help them, like find my way to help as many people as possible. And there's not, you know, one definitive path to that. I don't know how I'll, you know, get there, but the goal just is to help. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Lindsey Vaughn. To see our hike around her 24-acre property, plus our workout at the U.S. Ski Center of Excellence, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.